publisher of Zen Podcast. Like rivers, sometimes the biggest adventures start small. This certainly proved to be the case as we set out from our August base camp to head up over a high mountain pass in the San Juans of Colorado. Besides the beauty of the alpine tundra, I had my heart set on visiting a few of the natives who've called these mountains home for some 70,000 years. Climbing into the driver's seat perched high upon the lifted frame of our rental jeep, I used my thumb to clear the dust from the gauges. Once strapped in, I stomped the clutch and fired her up. It had been several years since I'd driven a stick, so as we began to roll along the washboard that serves as street in the old mining town, I might as well have been 15 again, whiplashing us through the gears on the way back to the cabin. We were in the Four Corners area for the first time and planned to stay the entire month of August. One early lesson was that I will never again visit that part of the country without a four-wheel drive vehicle. We had taken the van so we'd have a place to sleep on camping excursions, but there were just too many places we wanted to go that were high clearance 4 by 4 only and the spot we had in mind for this outing was just such a place. A little online research had awarded us the opportunity to rent the last and least expensive 4x4 to be had. There was no extra charge to pick it up the evening prior, so we made the short walk along a street of packed earth mixed with a small ration of crushed stone. After a quick walk around to assess and inventory the multitude of scratches, scrapes, and bruises that marred the outside of the 15-year-old Wrangler, papers were signed, and she was mine all mine. Well, at least for the next 24 hours. The gentleman at the rental company assured us that this was, quote, the most capable of the Jeeps in their fleet and would take us anywhere we might want to go. He added that it had in fact started its life as his personal off-road vehicle, tricked out to take on the many forest roads and treacherous passes that crisscross these mountains. If that were ever the case, its overlanding glory days were certainly behind it now. As we rolled along, the term rattletrap came to mind. We sounded less like a capable 4 by 4 and more like a toppled-over bucket of bolts rolling around the bed of a vintage pickup. The next morning, cooler-filled, day packs and fly rod tubes stashed behind the seats, we climbed aboard our rickety rig to trek to the tundra. Alpine tundra, that is. The minute we chose Colorado for our escape from the fiery furnace that is Texas Hill Country in August, I began to research both popular and off-the-beaten-path fly fishing destinations in that area of the San Juans. I soon discovered that the possibilities are quite nearly endless. There are more trout rivers and streams within a 50-mile radius than I wager could be fished in a lifetime. But there was a particular gem that had caught my attention, sending it to the top of my must-fish list. The idea that I could fish for a month and never below about 10,000 feet had me feeling like a kid in a candy store with a pocket full of pennies. This time, I'd be in search of native Rio Grande cutthroat trout, in the tributaries and headwaters of the Rio Grande. It's one of 14 subspecies of cutthroat trout native to the western United States. These trout were the first New World trout encountered by Europeans when in 1541, Spanish explorer Francisco de Coronado recorded seeing trout in the Pecos River near Santa Fe, New Mexico. 
these were most likely Rio Grande cutthroats. Historically, these fish occupied all cool waters in the Rio Grande drainage, including the Chama, Yemes, and Rio San Jose drainages, along with suitable waters of the Pecos and Canadian drainages. But they currently live in only about 100 headwater streams, occupying a mere 10% of their former range. Targeting these trout on the fly in their stunningly gorgeous native range is an experience so amazing that the mere idea of it travels down from your brain and flutters around a little in your chest. This sort of excursion borders on holy pilgrimage to me. So naturally, I approach it with a good measure of reverence to accompany the excitement. Come to think of it, reverence is often a posture I take when exploring outdoors. Most of the forest roads and off-road trails in these parts were originally narrow tracks cut through the mountains to ferry supplies and minerals to and from thousands of mines that pierced these slopes starting in the late 1800s. They were first designed for pack animals and eventually improved to accommodate wagons. Early in the 20th century, the first automobile made its way over one of the more famous passes in the area, but not without the help of a strong team of plow horses. Most have now been acquired by the U.S. Forest Service and are maintained for backcountry access and recreational use. Rough as they can be, without this maintenance, they would likely be impassable, and depending on snowpack, they're usually only open from late June to early October each year and require a high-clearance 4x4 or OHV to traverse. As we headed out of town, though I'm not sure my passenger would have agreed, I felt like I was getting a better feel for the rhythm of the clutch. Most of my fly fishing excursions are solo, but for the rare occasion when schedules align and the pursuit takes me to a destination with an unmistakable allure of its own, as was the case here. The route was slow and the climb a little nerve-wracking. The steep switchbacks of loose stone and occasional boulder between us and the tree line, where pine forests gave way to rolling tundra, were often narrow and provided a dizzying view of drop-off out the passenger side window. At one point, we caught up with a newer model Land Rover in deep navy with blacked-out windows, street tires, and shiny chrome wheels. I had the passing thought that it seemed odd to take a luxury sled over such a punishing terrain. But there was little time to dwell on it, as the driver stopped just past the intersection of a hairpin turn to the left and yet another trail to the right. Since the rover had stopped just past the right turn, probably to check the map, we were forced to go left and then stop ourselves to consult our map, only to learn that left was the wrong direction. In retrospect, it was not the best place to pause when only my tenuous ability to keep some gear teeth and a flywheel sufficiently connected stood between survival and a neutral-inspired roll to a backward free fall off the mountainside. This was certainly not a situation suited for clutch slipping. And it didn't help that two nights prior, no joke, I had dreamed I rolled backward off of a cliff in a car I was driving. Complete with that tingly, stomach-churning feeling of falling. But with some patience and very slow and deliberate operation of the vehicle, we had backed safely around the tight corner and were again headed in the right direction, up and over. 
I don't really have suitable words for the relief that came as we emerged rocky climb behind us onto the vast expanse of green. As we reached the highest point of the pass, our breath was quickened, not just by the views, but by the thinning air well above 12,000 feet. We pulled the jeep off the main trail to take a break and soak up the views from what felt to us like the top of the world. And it might have been easy to think we were all alone up there, if not for the occasional sharp and loud eking sound made, as we would discover, by one of the locals. I kept hearing this sound, almost like the chirp of a chipmunk, but fuller and significantly louder, as it echoed off the slopes and boulders strewn across the high mountain basin. No, we were not alone. Finally, I laid eyes on one of our watchful neighbors, a fat little marmot, rather like a beaver without tail or long teeth, standing sentinel on top of a rock pile and intent on alerting the whole neighborhood of our presence. A scan of our surroundings, eyes tuned to the sight of little brown blurs of movement, revealed that we were indeed surrounded. Since that experience, I now seek out situations where it's just me and the marmots. They live in some beautifully remote places. Back in our chariot of glass and steel, we started our descent on the opposite side. I heard water before I saw it. The top was down as we rounded a bend in the road about 500 feet or so lower in elevation, and I heard the unmistakable gurgle of flowing water prick my ears. Looking down, I saw what amounted to a trickle running down from the left through a small pipe pretending to be a culvert, and exiting to the right and on down the shallow swale. I was witnessing the birth of a river. Every trickle that forms and begins to flow down a mountainside, save those destined for an alpine lake, is bound, directly or indirectly, to become a river. And something about the potential The idea that a river was simultaneously beginning here and ending elsewhere brought a mix of thrill and emotion similar to what I experienced the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. It's that thing that happens when you allow yourself to feel small in all the best ways. To feel as though you are part of something greater. A minute yet imperative piece of the perfection of creation. We continued our progress along the roadway as the little ditch that could meandered closer and farther from us, growing up into a proper, fishable creek. It was hard to guess how far upstream trout might be present, so when I felt like the water was sufficient enough to hold sizable natives, we pulled off at the next level and clear spot along the road. To tell the truth, I wasn't even sure if there were trout present here. I was going on mapless recommendations and rumors. You see, Local fly anglers don't generally share much more than vicinity when suggesting areas to fish. But I was too excited and determined to even entertain the idea of failure. If there were native rios here, I thought, this little four-weight and I were going to find them. Fly rods, like acquaintances, come and go over time. But some become good friends, bound to stick around. The beauty I brought along for this excursion was chosen with no shortage of sentiment. The eight-foot, four-weight, full-flexing Orvis Superfine in tow, a birthday present several years ago, 
first had introduced me to the zen of flycasting. And though I had fished with it all over the country at that point, it had never been bent on a trout. And since it was designed for situations precisely like the one I was headed for, it seemed only fair to provide an opportunity for it to excel at its intended purpose. And it was about to shine. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy these stories and interviews, please subscribe to the podcast and consider sharing it with your friends. And remember, if you want to have a peek at some of the amazing places mentioned in stories like this one, there are always photos posted with them over at fisherofzen.com. Out of the Jeep, I hastily assembled and strung up my rod, stepped into my wet wading socks, and donned my fish pond tenderfoot youth fishing vest. Don't laugh, it's the only respectable vest I've ever found that's small enough to fit me. Because evidently, when fly fishing vest designers sleep, they, quote, dream of large women. Extra points if you can name that movie. Anyhow, once properly outfitted, I bounded down the hill as a kid headed for the swimming hole for the first dip of summer. Once streamside, I mustered enough discipline to stop and read the water, looking for deeper sections along cut banks or behind the occasional boulder where trout might hold. No guessing was necessary in this case, as the clear water and slower flow made it as though I was viewing fish floating suspended under glass. Two-way glass. So I snuck across and came up alongside to deliver my first cast at the head of a run. A full-flexing fly rod was purpose-built to deliver a fly with all the delicacy pristine water demands. And the Orvis Superfine is among the classics in this category. If the topwater strike wasn't immediate, it was just shy of. A rather quick strip in had a gorgeous Rio Cuddy hanging out in the bottom of my net. My first. The paint job on these fish is otherworldly. And that signature slash of orange along the lower jaw leaves little question that they are aptly named. If you want to see one for yourself, click over to the website and look at the photos associated with this post. First catch in the net, I went on to spend a few of the most enjoyable hours fly fishing in recent memory. It became almost comical to me. Nearly every cast, every drift, was rewarded with a topwater splash and subsequent tug at the tippet. These waters are covered with ice and snow for all but a fleeting stretch of summer, and the vigor with which the trout feed at higher altitude signals they are well aware of this fact. Eventually, the reality of a waning day and long haul back over the pass and down the mountain to civilization came knocking at the door of my little paradise. On the way out, we ran into our land-roving friend again, a local gentleman and fly angler who had brought his visiting son to fish these holy waters. A nice chap who volunteered a few other local suggestions to a fellow creek stomper. The slow crawl back down the mountain in four low gave ample time to reflect on an afternoon well spent, to relive some of those drifts. Particularly, the last one made around and behind a certain boulder. At no more than two to two and a half feet, it was still one of the deeper pools in the stretch I was fishing, meaning there was a good chance it might hold one of the larger fish likely to inhabit these waters. 
I had already missed the snag on a few takes in the current. My luck was surely running out, but I still felt there was a chance at a hookup. I inspected and dried my fly, reapplying a squeeze of floatant to keep it high on the water. Making a couple of false casts, I slipped a little more line to start my drift further upstream. That was the ticket. With a convincing gulp, the fly disappeared below the surface, the line tightened on the head shake of a sizable Rio Grande cutthroat, and with that, the day's biggest catch appeared in the bottom of my net. I will seek out opportunities to return to waters like these as often as possible, to mingle with the marmots, to breathe in the high mountain air, to once again pass a little time casting in the clouds. There's a long list of things I love about fly fishing, and the way wade fishing small water serves to anchor me in the moment certainly ranks high. I've been thinking quite a bit lately about those fleeting moments in life when you are totally present and in some relative state of bliss. Those times are so precious, and in this day and age, fairly hard to come by without a little impetus. So I say make plans to chase them. And when you catch one, embrace it. It might just take you to the top of the world. Please join me next time. Until then, this is Carrie Ray, the Fisher of Zen inviting you to let the outside in. If you have comments, questions, or topics you'd like to see covered on Fisher of Zen, please reach out at carrie at fisherofzen.com. <laughs>